Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Glad uh, glad, uh, glad you're all here. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share a little bit of my story and uh, <clears throat> some of the things that I tried that did not work and what eventually started to work in my life and uh, really turned my life around. And uh, I uh, originally there was a lot. I, I was abused by a babysitter when I was like three or four years old, and uh, ultimately, uh, as is many times the case, became an abuser of other kids in the neighborhood, and uh, actually was banned from three houses in the neighborhood because of because of my behavior. So shame, guilt. That was a real. That was a real early thing for me that I didn't uh, d- didn't realize, and uh, I can remember when I was thirteen year years old. I mean, the, of course, the flesh boundary was crossed early on. So a bunch of boys and I were playing strip poker in uh, one of the kids' basements, and a couple of us got our clothes off. And then I said, "Okay, let's do this for the next for the next thing." And uh, they all looked at me like I was from another planet. And at that moment. It was like, what's wrong with me? Something is wrong with me. And uh, growing up in a little small coal mining town in Western Kentucky, the thought uh, in the 60s of being a homosexual was was absolutely the worst possible thing imaginable. So from that moment on, from the time I was 13 on, it was the pursuit of of lust from uh from girls women whatever and that would that would carry with me for years and years and years um i can remember that uh uh, ultimately i got married and uh and nothing changed nothing nothing uh, uh stopped i continued on with my uh uh with my affairs my uh uh, uh, multiple sex partners. And, uh, one day, uh, in 1990, my wife, uh, I was quote unquote working late, which, uh, uh, my, one of my great excuses. And, uh, she came into my office unexpectedly. And I was there with one of my existing affair partners. And for the first time, really in my marriage, I thought something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with me. And, uh, so I knew that there, uh, uh, that there was an issue that I couldn't stop. I just kept going and going and going. And that's the first time that I actually sought out therapy. Uh, a lot of therapy. I did a lot that I've got to fix this thing. So, uh, during that period of time was my first introduction to SA went in to meetings, uh, got a sponsor and, uh, my, uh, philosophy was I'd always done everything myself. I'd always been a control freak. And I thought, okay, these 12 steps, I can knock these out. I can take any test. So I'm going to knock these 12 steps out. It's going to be an academic exercise. And once I've done that, I will be well. And if I just get enough therapy, if I can just get to the bottom of it, I will be well. Or, uh, if I, uh, uh, pray enough, if I teach Sunday school, <laughs> whatever my faith, if I just do enough of that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get well. And uh, I went to my first SA meeting and uh, somebody gave me a reading and I couldn't, I couldn't get through it. I couldn't get through it. I broke down. I couldn't get through it. I was so broken and uh and so many pieces that i couldn't even get through it i remember it was a wednesday night seven o'clock uh i remember it like it was yesterday uh but that was in 1990. so uh i continued on that route i read every book possible i even went in minnesota in the states there is a addiction uh therapist called patrick carnes who wrote the book out of the shadows 
I flew up there, met with him, and I thought, I'm going to get this all under control. So I had done all of the academic things that you would think would, would, would solve the problem. Um, I studied my family of origin carefully, all the way back, generations. So at this point in time, I had to some extent a pretty good idea of who I was and a pretty good idea of my family of origin, but I had no idea how to get sober. Even though I kept going into meetings, even though I would call my sponsor occasionally, uh, I would go for a while and be great and feel better. And then I would start the slide right back again. Uh, one of the big things that I finally said, well, there's got to be a reason. I'm doing this therapy. I'm doing this family of origin work. Uh, I'm reading these books and I'm still sliding back. Uh, and so at that point in time, I had to find a reason. And the reason was I gave myself lots of reasons. Uh, one of them was, got some notes here, was, well, everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing this. It's not just me, everybody. Everybody I see, everybody, they're all doing it. They're just doing a really, really good job of hiding it. So that was one of my, one of my pieces of denial. Uh, another one was, uh, I just have a higher sex drive than everybody else. If, if they had a higher sex drive like I do, they'd be doing the same things, uh, same things that, that I was doing. Uh, if my wife, if everybody would treat me better, I wouldn't have to resort to this. I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be doing this. Uh, and I can remember back in 2001, I was actually uh, on my way to the airport to fly to another city to meet somebody. I had no reason to be in that city, but to fly to another city to meet with a person that I thought I could act out with. Uh, for whatever reason, at that point in time, I said, I think I'll call my sponsor. I called my sponsor and he, and I don't even remember what he said. I just know that I had pulled off the road and I realized I am utterly failing at, at, at recovery. I have not yet, uh, I have not yet got it, so to speak. And even though I was having periods that I was okay, I really wasn't, but I thought I was okay. And then I would go, you know, then I would go back and forth. Uh, what I realized was, I was trying to think my way into acting better and it never worked. My thinking had always been wrong. And as long as I was trusting my thinking, it was never, ever going to work. Um, at that point, I realized I really did not understand the steps and working the steps. I really didn't have a clue. And I decided uh, I'm going to have to try something different. I'm going to have to no longer trust my thinking. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to go to at least four to five meetings a week in any shape, form, or fashion. And I've lived in different states, and sometimes that meant a long drive. Uh, or whatever, back before Zoom meetings, but I, but I did it, and I'm going to call my sponsor every day, uh, and I started doing that, and, and what I learned was that in doing that, I was actually working the first three steps. By going to a meeting, I was actually uh, accepting the fact that I've got a problem and I'm out of control. That was the first step by, by making the call, going to the meeting. The second step is trusting there's got to be something else. Well, the fact that I went to a meeting, the fact that I made a phone call, that was a second step. I, I wouldn't make calls unless I thought there's got to be something else. And of course, the third step is uh, turned my life over. And uh, what they say came, came to, then came to believe. So, uh, so for the first time in my life, I actually started to understand the first three steps. And I realized that the third step didn't say, uh, my uh, uh, religion uh, did not have to be. Uh, I tried my religion. I said, God, please, Jesus, please. Never worked. Never worked. No matter how much I prayed, no matter how much I tried. And it was not because of the religions per se. 
It was strictly because of me. I was not ready to let go. So slowly by beginning to call every day, and I'll tell you, for me, there's nothing in the world harder than to pick up a phone and call somebody, particularly every day. You know, my philosophy prior to that was if I'm feeling bad, if I'm having a rough day, I'll pick up my phone. I'll call my sponsor. I never realized that I never knew how I was feeling half the time. And until I called, uh, I wouldn't, I, I, it was like, wow, I'm not feeling so good. Or, you know, I think I'm okay. And it didn't matter what we talked about. Sometimes we talk sports, we'd talk religion, we'd talk even politics, we'd talk anything, but it didn't matter. It didn't always matter what we had to talk about. It was the fact that I picked up the phone and called again. That was working the first three steps. The fourth step for me was listing the ways that I'd acted out. I had no clue. I thought, you know, I thought, well, this is, this is my character defect. This is, you know, the way that I acted out. And until I really got involved, I had no idea. I had no idea uh, that the fourth step uh, was not just what I was acting out. It was all of those underlying character defects, which were pushing me, pushing me in that direction. Uh, I thought that getting sober would solve everything. Some of the things, uh, you know, when you have a car wreck, they say there's several, there, there, there's several impacts. You know, there's you hitting the steering wheel or the windshield. There's everything in the car that comes forward and, and uh, rushes to the front of the car. Well, there were things that I had done from a business standpoint back when I was not paying attention. Uh, so many times something would come up and I was deep in lust. It was like, don't bother me with that. I don't have time. I don't have time. Well, the only reason I didn't have time is I was busy uh, planning my next fantasy, my next escape, escape, something like that. So I had made some, some, uh, some decisions which were exactly like that. I wasn't paying attention. So uh, during sobriety, thank God it was during sobriety, I lost absolutely everything. I lost my house, cars, uh, foreclosure. Uh, I mean, I went down to the, to, to the bottom, but I was sober. And I can remember those conversations with my sponsor every day. What am I going to do? <laughs> you know, I'm flat broke. I've got nothing. I've got three kids and a wife. And, uh, you know, he would say, son's going to, son's going to come up tomorrow. And I promise you, you're going to be okay. Now you don't get to decide what okay is only God decides what okay is, but you are going to be okay. And I'll be darned. Uh, he was right. I was, and, uh, it turned out and it's just like small incremental positive things doing the next right thing one at a time over the course of time adds up to to, to an enormous amount up until that point in time i had been doing the wrong things on a day-to-day -day basis those added up as well so it really uh, that was really tough i can remember some of the things people say well gee uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be bored. I like the excitement of acting out. Uh, I will say every day I must remind myself that there is for me, there is nothing in the world that is more exciting, more thrilling, more endorphin producing and more complete and total body, uh, controlling than acting out. It's unbelievable. And uh, I'm not sure that what I call earth people, people who are not addicts, I'm not sure uh, they have that. But I, I firmly believe that uh, uh, I have that. But I have to also remember, I can't handle it. I just can't. I, I'm just I'm just not capable of handling it. Um, I came to a point where there were so many things in my life that I had done that I could have, you know, they say, we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I came to believe that this was a genetic problem for me. Uh, uh, I have sponsees that have seemed to have great childhood. And, you know, I'm sure that some of this uh, contributes, but I honestly believe that the, the brain, the wiring in my brain uh, takes lust and pushes it to a level that is, uh, that's unbelievable. And in part of my, in part of my, uh, uh, family of origin study, 
one of the one of the funniest stories was I had an uncle and I lived in a very small town. So things that happened in this little town got spread around uh, to a lot of different people. So one of the stories I heard in the town was about uh, one of my uncles. He was having an affair uh, with a lady. And uh, in order to not draw uh, suspicion, he would get in the trunk of this lady he was having an affair with uh, during the day. He would get in her trunk and she would drive across town to her house uh, where they would act out. One day, one day she stops at a stop sign <laughs> and somebody rams into the back of her car. <laughs> so the people called the police, obviously, and the police came up. And this was one of the most classic sex addict excuses I have ever heard. I mean, it has to go down in history as a classic uh, sexaholic uh, thing. Uh, they, they looked at the hood and they said, well, it's not too bad. And they pushed it and the hood pops up. And there the guy is, there's my uncle and crawled up, curled up in the back of the trunk. And they said, what are you doing in here? And he said, well, everybody's got to be somewhere. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, That's one of the greatest lines I've ever heard from a sexaholic. I had a lot of good ones, but, but, uh, that was, that was classic. Um, I think that, I think that the key for me and the key to, uh, uh, turning this over was the fact that. I refused to think. Uh, thinking was what caused my problems. And that if I would act, the correct thinking would follow. And uh, uh, one of the pieces of the program that always baffled me was half measures availed us nothing. You know, I would always take up that and say, wait a minute. So if I do 51%, I'm okay. Or what is 51% exactly? You know, <laughs> what, what's the difference between a half measure and a whole measure? And, you know, can it be 70%? What works? And I started to realize that uh, uh, really and truly, if I would invest as much time in uh, meetings, calls, uh, uh, meditation uh, that, that I did in my addiction, that I no longer was taking a half measure. And by going to those meetings, by making a commitment to going to the meetings and making the calls, uh, it wasn't something that all of a sudden a big revelation occurred. It was slow. It was a slow process. But uh, what I learned was that the, the, the steps, rather than me working the steps, the steps started working me. And the, the third step uh, was one of the most difficult steps for me uh, in that I had always wanted to draw a picture of God. I wanted to be able in a, uh, as they say, an elevator pitch, tell you what God was. And I realized that I couldn't, I could not, I, I could not describe it. I could not put a picture. I couldn't put it in a box, but at the point in time when I accepted the fact that that was okay. I didn't have to draw a picture. I didn't have to put it in a box. All I had to accept was that it was certainly something that was greater than me. That took so much pressure off of me in trying to figure out what is this God thing and what is this third step. Uh, I quit trying uh, uh, to put a box around it. I quit trying to uh, 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 figure out what it was and just accept it. I don't understand it, but I don't have to. All I have to do is accept the, accept the fact that it's bigger than me. Uh, once I got beyond that, I began to accept what I could control and what I couldn't control. I had spent my whole life attempting to control everything around me. And in order to accept that I couldn't control something would mean that I would fail. And I think part of that was my childhood, because if, uh, you know, it was it could be a little scary in that I had to control things or things would be bad. And that's exactly what what my experience had been. But I realized being an adult and actually uh, accepting the third step, uh, I began to take that pressure off that what is it that I really have control over today? And there's not a lot, but what I can 
is I can do the next right thing. I can go to a meeting. I can, I can call my sponsor. And the direct amount of time that I actually am uh, action-wise in terms of recovery, uh, I have several calls a day, uh, sponsees call, and then, and then I call. Uh, it, it doesn't compare to the amount of time that I was lost in lust. It just, the, the amount of time I was lost, uh, uh, every morning I got up, that's the first thing I thought about. And every night when I went to bed would be the last thing I would think about. Uh, so the actions, not the thoughts, but the actions. And it, uh, uh, the, 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 the steps did not stop me from acting out. Uh, what happened was my acceptance of the steps helped me to present uh, myself to a whole new world in terms of positive sobriety, in terms of working positively. And uh, a little difference to that is I can, uh, I can tell you about what the temperature is today. I never could do that before. I can remember acting out one time and in in going to a hotel and I pulled out of the parking lot and I was so lost in lust, I ran straight into another car. And when I got back to my office, I said, well, I guess you heard I had a little accident down in, in Atlanta, Georgia is where that happened. And uh, my secretary said, well, yeah, but there's another problem. And I said, what is that? And she said, your driver's license was suspended. <laughs> so, and that was just one of those things. Don't bother me with, don't bother me with renewing my license. I've got lust I need to think about. So uh, moving further along, I think that uh, what I did not understand is the 12 steps for me, I really believed that was what I did to stop acting out. What I learned was that when I was born, I did not get God's manual for how to live life in a healthy man, uh, manner. Some, somehow I missed the memo on that. I didn't know. I really didn't know. I was pretending. I was acting. I was trying to be what I thought I was supposed to be based on what other people uh, did and looked like. But today I realize that truly the 12 step program, it's not a cult. It's not a, it's not a religion. It's just a very, very simple rule book for me to live life in a very, very healthy manner. And every day, every single step is a part of my life and uh, go through it on a daily basis. It, it has to be. And it's not something that, that I really chose. The only thing I chose was to take the action. I took the action and uh, I did not work the steps. Ultimately, the steps worked me. So uh, each day, and I, one of the things that I continuously, continuously come back to is the fourth step. The fourth step for me is an ongoing experience because for protection purposes, I have buried over the years a lot of these character defects and they pop up. That's a lifelong, that's a lifelong study for me to accept, oh, you're right. I do do that. And we say in the program a lot of times, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about, which uh, my wife likes that one. And then uh, to say, uh, I'm often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> she, she likes that one too. But uh, I think that the degree of, uh, and I talked about the excitement for, for just a second. And uh, I've said before, it was really exciting to get shot at. You know, that was exciting. It was exciting to have the sheriff come to the, come to my house and deliver two sexual harassment lawsuits. That was exciting. It was exciting to go to the clinic and get tested for sexually <laughs> transmitted diseases. That was exciting. Uh, yeah, that was an exciting life. And uh, uh, the excitement today is extremely deep. The depth of relationships, the depth of understanding, the depth of compassion, the depth of treating people uh, in a manner that uh, that I would want to be treated. Just last week, I ran into a guy that I had worked with 30 years ago, and I had completely forgotten what I did to this guy. And he brought it up, and it suddenly hit me, wow, I've got an amends to make. I've got an amends to make to this guy, and I did. And he was kind of bowled over that, Wow, I don't remember you being this way you know, 30 years ago, but it not, it's nonstop. 
but I love it. I love every day. I love getting up every day. I mean, it's a wonderful world. I don't have to walk around with the cloud over my head, a dark cloud hovering over my head. Fear of people, fear of economic insecurity. Uh, I don't say that it doesn't come back. It does sometimes. But by and large, I never, ever got into this program thinking that this is what was going to happen in my life because it is so, so overwhelming in so many areas of my life, business-wise, person, personal-wise, uh, health-wise. Uh, all these different things have, uh, you know, have uh, the promises are coming true for me, and they're continuing to come true for me. But I didn't think my way to it because, as I said before, uh, if I thought uh, I screwed up for 11 years, I can't say I screwed up, it just took me 11 years to learn. I would think, do I need a meeting today? That's the worst thing I could do is think about whether I needed a meeting. If my thinking was okay, I wouldn't need to meet in the first place. I, I'd be an earth person out there having a, having a normal life, but I never think about that. I can't. And sometimes I'll get really, really busy and I'll think, well, I'm going to go ahead and work through this. And I realize that's my thinking getting in the way of what I need to be doing. And yes, I have luncheons and things that occur that I can't make meetings uh, that are, that are really out of my control and that's okay. But I had to stop thinking about whether I needed to call my sponsor, I had to quit thinking about it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to call. I didn't want to pick up the phone. Or, yeah. He didn't have time for me. Oh, he doesn't want to do that. Blah, blah, blah. And I had to forget about it. And I had to say, this is not, a choice. This is something I have to do. I do not have the I do not have the ability to correctly think about whether I need to do it or not. I just got to do it. And I think that, uh, based on, on what, what I'm talking about today, that is what really, after 11 years of uh, in and out, in and out, that's really what turned the corner for me is to stop thinking about working the program and let the program work me. No longer think, do I need a meeting? No longer think, do I need a call? So that is that is uh, kind of where I am today. And that's kind of what my experience has been. And uh, I'm uh, certainly open to any questions anybody anybody might have. So uh, thank you so much for, for your time today. I really appreciate being a part of this international group. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Tim. Kathy, sexaholic. Um, I'm on step zero, reworking step zero, coming towards step one again. I'm very much at the stage of having to battle with my thinking, which was mentioned in the share. I'd like to ask you a question. How long were you in SA working the program and or what step were you on when this change of attitude occurred from thinking your way to acting your way and letting the steps work you? Thank you. Give me a bit of hope. I was in 11 years before I actually got start, actually started my sobriety. And uh, I could say I had periods of three months or six months, but uh, uh, to, in all honesty, I was not on a step because I had pretended to work the steps from an academic standpoint, but I had not hit that place where I finally said, I, I'm whipped. There's no way, no way I'm ever going to do this. I give up. And that's when I said, my thinking has gotten me nowhere. I've got to give up. So at step zero, that's exactly where I was. I wasn't, I, I, you know, I can take a pencil and paper and tell you I wrote down, wrote down all the answers to all of the, the worksheets and all the workbooks. I wasn't on any step. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kathy. Jake. Okay. Hi. Um, well, I got a question for you. Um, uh, I've been on the program since 2017 and I didn't do, I heard you did therapy before you joined SA and you could say I did the program. I'm still doing it, of course, but from, from one to 12, I did all the, the books and everything, and currently I'm just still working the program, but in a more um, loose fashion, you would say. I don't know, 1, 2, 3, and 10, 11, 12, or whatever way you want to put it. Um, 
and still doing it with my sponsor. But I have this constant feeling that I need something more. And my question is, did you, after working on a program, after being sober for a certain while, did you think that you need something more? Or did you say, okay, 12, pro, 12 step program is enough for me? That's uh, great. Actually, by the time I started to get sober, I said, I need something less. <laughs> I already had too much. I needed something okay. less. But uh, I highly, highly recommend therapy. I highly recommend uh, family of origin issues. And the reason why I do is because those are the things that undergirded my fourth step work. When I realized what was happening in my, in my family of origin growing up, those are many of the things which underscored my character defects. So I, I don't think I could have uh, done as, as well as I did. And 11 years is a long time to screw it up, but that's okay. It takes as long as it takes. And, uh, somebody asked me how many, you know, how long do I have to go to meetings? And, you know, the answer is until you want to go to meetings. And, uh, that's, I look forward every day, you know, to, to meetings and phone calls. I didn't, I didn't before. Uh, I'm not sure there's anything more I could ask for in this life. I mean, I really am not because it never ends. It's continuing. It I continue to grow. I continue to learn. Uh, but the key to me was quit thinking, quit thinking, take the steps, take the actions, move, don't stop, take the actions. That was, that was the key. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Tim. Lee. Hi, Tim. Uh, hey, Lee. Glad to, glad to hear you. Uh, it was a great chair. I don't know if you remember, there's an old timer in uh, Nashville whose uh, mantra was, I'm not qualified to think. And, uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and I think that's the case with me. After four years of twice a week psychotherapy, I was having a period where I almost killed myself. Sure. Yet I thought I was going to control it. And uh, I was actually intervened on and forced to go to uh, inpatient treatment. And it was there after four months. It took four months for them to teach me. I didn't know anything. And, uh, and that the program was experiential and not information. Uh, so the question I have is, you know, you talked about, you found out that you had to give up. Was there a specific event that precipitated that in you? And was it sudden or did it evolve over a period of time? Uh, it was that it was that time I mentioned that I was driving to the airport and uh, was going to another city once again for no purpose, spending company money for no reason. Remembering uh, the last time I was in Atlanta, I ran out of a parking lot, ran into somebody and you know, people say, call your sponsor when you're about to act out. I never call my sponsors like that. That never happened. I'm not going to call my sponsor. Are you kidding? He'll tell me not to do it. And I'm going to do it. That time I did. I don't know why I did, but I did. And he said, you need to turn around. You know how this ends, you know, play the tape forward. You know how it ends. It doesn't end well. And for the first time I, before I acted out, I called the sponsor. I turned around just, you know, uh, burned the cost of the plane tickets and said, I'm done. So I think it took 11 years. I'm a slow learner. It took me 11 years to realize at that moment in time, something has to change and the, my thinking is not going to change. So if my thinking is not going to change, it must be my actions that have to change. So that, that was pretty much the point. Thank you. Andrea, you had your hand raised. Did you want to ask a question? Yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tim, for your share. And uh, and I would like to ask you, uh, you talk about not to think. And um, um, one of my fellows uh, criticized me uh, because uh, for him, I do 
too much calls. Too much calls mean maybe I do four or five calls a day. And uh, he said to me that uh, I call because I have an obsession. And this really hurt me because uh, uh, if I don't call, I isolate me. If I call, I, uh, I, I'm an obsessive person. So uh, what you said about uh, don't think, just call, uh, really helped me. But do you think that, because I think I also have a problem of codependency, do you think that making calls to other fellows may be something bad in the sense that I can call other fellows because, uh, I don't know, I want to uh, be attached on people and to, um, you know, uh, do you think that call can become another obsession? I don't know. Uh, by the way, I don't call anymore this this fellow because it really hurted me. And uh, uh, I, I would like to know what do you think about it. Thank you. Whatever you need to do, whatever action that you need to take to stop the behavior, it cannot be it, it cannot be too much. It's like how many? I do not believe calls and meetings. I do not believe you can have too many meetings but I definitely believe you can have too few uh, just the same way with calls. I have a lot of calls every day. And uh, sometimes I have a sponsee call and I look at it and said, Oh hell, I don't want to talk to them. I'm busy. But then I realized where I was and I realized what happened to me, but I don't think that you can, uh, I, I, you know, I, yeah. Stay away from the person that said, you <laughs> make the calls that you feel you need to make in order to keep uh, your life uh, uh, manageable. So, and I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not there, but, but my, j this is just my opinion. Take, take what you need and leave the rest. But yeah, I would, I would make the calls I need to make. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Isolation is the addict's friend. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Juan Carlos. Thank you very much, uh, Tim. Uh, yes, I love your share. Um, I quite relate with so many things that you said. And especially, uh, yes, I'm sex attracted uh, since I was uh, a teenager. Uh, I also uh, listened to you that uh, you were you got married. I'm, I'm I'm still married. I don't know how, but I'm still married with my wife for almost 33 years. And I was having double personality and well cheating her since I met her. Um, because I am still married, I would like to ask you uh, how do you manage your relationship with, with your wife if you are still married. Thank you. Thanks, Juan Carlos. There was a point in time, uh, I mean, you know, some people, marriages don't work out. Uh, some people do. Mine did. Uh, I was at a point in therapy where all of my uh, quote unquote recovery uh, efforts were to save my marriage. Everything was focused on saving my marriage. My therapist finally said, if your recovery is dependent upon anybody else in the world, you're never going to recover. You're never going to find the life that you need. Your wife may leave you. You may get divorced. That might happen. You are going to have to have a relationship with yourself first. You don't have that right now. Your relationship is totally codependent on your wife. And that if you can't make her happy so that she won't leave you, you've, you fail. You got to let go of that. And I think that is the point in time, which I realized I need to take care of myself. And it is a selfish program, but by taking care of myself, I became a much better husband. And I had to accept the fact that she may be gone. That's a very, very scary place to be. And I'm sure a lot of you've been there, but that was, that I think was probably the difference. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Dennis. Hey, Tim, thank you so much. That was very, very powerful. What really stuck out to me is a truth that I never could put words to is that if I can't control something, I have failed. And man, I think that is um, very powerful. Can you speak a little bit about that? or what you just talked about codependency, because that's something I really suffer from still. Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, my first initial reaction really to the, to the third step, uh, uh, not third step prayer, the serenity prayer is that, wait a minute, 
I've got a business to run. I can't be working one day at a time. I've got plans and projections and budgets, and I couldn't I couldn't put the two together. It's like, wait a minute. You know, are you telling me that uh, I can't control the future? That my whole life has been about controlling the future. And then I started to realize that every single plan uh, process could only could only be tackled one day at a time. And when I quit living in the future, it was okay to make plans. It was okay to put projects together, but I could only execute one day. And that's when I started to realize that I had ignored so many of the pieces because I was trying to live next week, next month. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. All hell's going to break loose. That's too much pressure. I can do what I need to do today. So that, that piece of, uh, of control uh, let, letting go of that has been such a blessing because I can do what I need to do today. I really can't, I, I can't tell you about tomorrow, but I can do what I need to do today based on my plans and, and what I really want to do. As far as codependency, one of my big issues in acting out was I would think I was in love with a person, you know, and I would think, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing. And I had to ask myself the question, if I leave and I marry this person, is there is there a possibility I'm going to still be looking for somebody else? And the hard, cold truth of that was absolutely going to do it again. So this person is not going to solve my problem. But uh, but the codependency really reared its head when I would try to break it off and try to say, I've got to get some sobriety. And I was so codependent. What are they going to think? What are they going to think? They won't like me anymore. And uh, I think the codependency... Uh, is attempting to make people like you and doing things differently as a result. And I think sobriety, healthy sobriety starts to infiltrate us to the point where we're okay where we are. We're going to do the next right thing. And I have no control over what somebody thinks of me or what I think of or what they think of what I'm going to do. And that comes into the fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. That's the fear of people is attempting to make everybody happy and you make everybody happy. You're going to be miserable. But if you make yourself happy doing the next right thing, uh, working the 11th and 12th step, codependency starts to evaporate. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Catherine. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Tim, very much for your share. I feel so much relief just by listening and um, and the experience that you share. Um, I wanted to, uh, is it second the word or second? Um, when you said there cannot be enough meetings or enough calls, um, I felt weird because when I came into the fellowship, I had a dependency relationship and I would call this man obsessively for years and years and years, several times a day. And I would go to my therapist once a week and I thought I would have to talk to this man every day to get out of this. <laughs> and I had the possibility when I came to SA to call women every day, several times instead of this man. And that was just, it was saving me. And I, yeah, I just wanted to share this and thank you very much for, for your share. Thank you very much. Yeah. Th those little threads or stashes, those are the hardest. As long as we've got those numbers, we've got those people at any given point in time, you can pull that up and there you go. It's like, I think I'll see what they're up to. No, no, no. That's not what they're up to. You know what you're doing, but that's the hardest thing in the world. That was the hardest thing for me, but taking the action, taking the positive action in recovery slowly eliminates all that. Thank you. Okay. Nancy. Hi, Tim. Um, it's so good to see you. It's so good to hear you share. I um, I really like little expressions, little phrases that help <laughs> me remember things. And I, I heard you mention a lot of them, which I love. Are there any favorite phrases of yours that help you? Oh, you know, obviously, obviously, obviously the one day at a time, because I, I get ahead of myself and I got to remind myself one day at a time. And uh, 
you know, for character defects, I really like, I'm not much, but I'll ever think about, you know, I mean, that's that, you know, that hits home. My wife reminds me of that. And I say, yep, got to, got to take a look, got to, got to take a look at that one. Or, uh, uh, you know, how many meetings do you need to go to? You need to go, you, you need to go to enough so that you want to go. And, uh, uh, it is no longer a chore. It's a, it, it, it's a real blessing. And, uh, there's, you know, I'm a simple guy and these simple things didn't mean anything to me until I started. And so I started to, to, to live those, th- those things. My kids, my kids laugh at me and, and, and they say, dad lives his life like a bumper sticker. Cause I'm always telling them, <laughs> I'm always telling them stuff. And, uh, I'll, one, one of them that I made up was the clock is my friend. The clock is my friend. And I would tell my kids that when they had homework and they were scared of a test. And I said, let me tell you something, uh, this time tomorrow it's over. It's over. The clock is your friend. You're going to get through it. That's just like when I was totally broke, the clock was my friend and I did, I got through it. Didn't die, you know, but there was a time early on when I first, uh, got into recovery that I did want to kill myself. And I really thought that everybody would be better off if I was dead. I really believe that. And that was really a, a really a down period. But, uh, so for me anyway, that was pretty normal to have, have a thought like that. Thank you. And I'm so glad you didn't. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. <laughs> okay. We have time for a couple of more shares of questions. So Muaz, you're next. Thanks, Francis. Um, yeah, I got one minute to share. So thank you so much for sharing. I've got so much to say. But I'm telling you, this is a godsend to just hear this from you today. Um, because I, I literally asked the exact same question to someone. Um, because I'm a chronic relapser to one of the fellows. Because I'm a chronic relapser. And today I relapsed to something that broke my boundaries. And I was really afraid. You know, so, and I also did something else. Like you told us, um, I didn't think about raising my hand. Usually I'm, I'm literally just like you. I don't really raise my hands and ask questions. So I did. Thank you so much for giving me that motivation. Uh, I had a question. Um, I recently just broke a boundary in my lusting. And I'm kind of worried that it might lead me to jail. Um, one fellow told me that, you know, my disease is something I cannot control. So is this something I cannot control? And if I'm bound to go to jail, is that something that I should just accept? Or is, is, or is there something I can do to not, not just end up there? That's my question. Okay. Uh, well, obviously in Nashville, we have a lot of, we have a lot of sexaholics in the, in the program. I'm sure you got a lot of sexaholics that are in the program, but I mean, one of the things that I keep in the back of my mind, which I think is funny is all the different ways that people act out. One guy breaks into minivans and masturbates. Another guy wants to have anal sex with old men, uh, with, with, with big guts. So it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. The only thing that matters is you have an obsession. You're out of control. Uh, no, you can't control it. You cannot control whatever it is that you do. You cannot control it any more than I can control it. I can't. It's impossible. So acceptance of the first step that you had to control, you can't do it. So don't beat yourself up. You're, you're normal. You're a normal sexaholic. <laughs> a normal sexaholic is going to think and do things that are crazy. So you're just normal. Don't, you know, you're just a normal sexaholic. Don't, don't beat yourself up too much, but you will pay consequences if you don't have a solution. So, and, you know, action ultimately is a solution. So I hope that, I hope that you can find, find your way into action to, uh, you know, to, to prevent that from happening. And a lot of people do go to jail, you know, people kill themselves. I mean, uh, it's a, it's, it's a death sentence if, if not, you know, if, if not approached, uh, in an action, in an action basis. So I'd say good luck with that, but Hey, you're a normal sexaholic. Uh, <laughs> no matter what you do, you're just a normal sexaholic. Okay. Thanks Tim. And we have time now for one quick question. The final one, Nora. Thanks Francis. I'll, uh, I'll make it quick. Um, thank you, Tim, for sharing. I'm really, 
I really appreciate being here today. Uh, my question is about, um, I hate to hear uh, people in SA say or talk about um, that the SA program is a program of zero lust. And um, I've been really kind of finding it challenging to stay sober. I hear people say that to get sober is much harder than than to stay sober, but I, but I've been facing like these challenging days, like like lust is not going anyway. I I know it it passes because I've been there before. The steps and the and the tools are working, but I'm uh, I just seem to inevitably test my limits several times, and um, I'm just wondering if you can share from your experience about the program being zero lust. Like I, I do lust and I do get to the point, you know, of being too close to acting out, but the tools, you know, make me step back. So if you can share about this, thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks. I think that uh, I am a sexaholic. I'm a lust addict. And I know some people have said, I've heard them say, I'm at a point now where lust just makes me sick to my stomach. And I'm going to tell you, I will never be at a place where lust makes me sick in my stomach. <laughs> I'm a sexaholic. It's going to be there. And the question is not zero lust for me. The question is, what am I going to do? And I have to laugh at myself and I laugh <laughs> at the sexaholic. It's like, there you go again. And I, I've said, if I am on my deathbed in the hospital, taking my last breath, if that nurse looks a certain way, it's going to go through my head. Now, I'm not going to do anything about it, at least today I'm not. <laughs> I can't answer for myself 30 years from now or five years from now, whenever that happens. But I think lust is very normal. It's normal for a sexaholic. So rather than beat myself up for lust, I try to recognize it. If I can step away from it and say, there I go again, there I go again, there goes my brain. Uh, and it's, and it's like, I, I can catch myself and take a pause and say, ah, don't do that. Nah, don't go anywhere with it because it's, it's not the lust. It's the action that, that follows it. You know, that's the, that's the problem. So, you know, that two second rule, three second rule. I don't know about all that stuff. I just know that I laugh at myself as a sexaholic and like, there I go again. If I can laugh at myself, I can separate the lust from the, you know, from the real from the real thoughts and the positive thoughts. So I don't know if that helps, but, uh, you know, I, zero thinking about lust, I, that's not possible for me. And uh, I give myself a break because I am a sexaholic. The nurse doesn't have to look a certain Thanks, way. Thanks, Exactly. I got <laughs> somebody in the room say, well, nurse doesn't have to look a certain way. So, yeah, I got a real low bar. My, my wife will confirm that I've got a real low bar of my sexaholism. <laughs> Great. Brilliant. Thank you, Tim. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.